Welcome to CM221, World Religions Midterm Exam. This is Dr. Bob Patton calling. And we're going to discuss a number of questions that are coming up. Remember that we began uh, looking at worldview. Worldview, of course, is very important and ties into all the major things that we try to work on, including our thinking, our emotions, our values, everything is involved in our worldview. And the worldview actually attempts to reach basic questions in our lives, basic things that are difficult to understand, and talks about such things as, how do I know what the world is about? How do I know why I am here? How do I know the nature of the universe? Basic questions, and these are assumptions. Now, worldview is kind of like a river. A river, you can change the base of the river, but it isn't going to change fast, and it's going to change slowly. It can change, but basically it's going to flow down the same way as it always has. And worldview is important because it impacts everything we do, including our religion. For Let's say uh, you were originally a Muslim and you convert to becoming a Christian. It isn't just a little bit of things that change. Your whole worldview will change. You are an atheist. You become, uh, again, you become a Christian. Now, when we look at that, it's easy to change. The easiest thing to do, of course, is to change our external behavior. That we can do. We can do it consciously and make a point of doing it. Our beliefs are a bit more difficult to really change if we really believe them. But our worldview is most difficult. That is that underlying structure that says this is the way things are. And that is toughest to change. And yet, ultimately, we find that if uh, we're going to be converted, it is at the worldview basis. And I can remember when I got saved, it took me about a full year to reprogram my thinking. And so my worldview was changing. Of course, I wasn't fully aware of this because worldview is assumptions you make, not something that is uh, concrete. You can see your believer beliefs I shouldn't say beliefs. You can see your behavior concretely. You can understand your beliefs pretty concretely, too. You can say, well, I didn't believe that, but I believe this now. But the worldview is basically pretty much unconscious unless we examine it carefully. Thus, it takes a lot to change worldview. Most often, uh, it may occur at certain key events. Of course, worldview begins with um, birth, and as you come into the world, death, marriage, anything like that can show what your worldview is. Uh, any kind of stress like that will demonstrate what your underlying worldview is. And our worldview also validates what we really feel is important, what we feel are our cultural assumptions and values. So worldview is actually deeper than beliefs, and it is deeper than behaviors. 
and we need to understand it. And the biggest problem we have is generally it is we are totally unaware of it. And that is one of the reasons we have such things as cultural anthropology, for example, to make you conscious and aware of the worldview assumptions that you have. There are huge differences uh, between, for example, the worldview of an individual-oriented society, like the United States, and a society that is kinship-oriented. For example, where we were in Suriname would be uh, typically kinship-oriented. The worldview of the West is basically individual. What are my rights? Oh, this is mine. I own it. Uh, I have the right to feel how I do. I have a right to say what I want to say. I can show how I, how I believe with what I do. And yet, uh, those things are not so common in collective societies. Well, they would say, this is ours. And instead of identifying yourself as, I'm uh, Bob Patton, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, uh, you might say, I belong to the Patton family. It may be that group, or I belong to uh, those who teach at the Crown College, looking at that as my primary identification rather than my personal identification. This is particularly true in group-oriented societies where we focus on our relationship with others. This is also seen in the difference in the Bible itself. For example, in the Bible, uh, you have the tendency towards seeing uh, things from a objective, outside point of view. You're looking at it like a Greek or an intellectual. That was the way I would, for example, look at it as I was going through medicine. Whereas the Hebrew society looks more at the uh, interaction uh, between groups and individuals and even between us and God. The very way of looking at time can be different. For example, we uh, have a concept of time of being American on time. Everybody should be on time. For an American, that means, well, you better be there within 15 minutes of the time you're there. Whereas uh, in many third world countries, it's an event-oriented thing. I can remember getting very frustrated uh, because many people would wander in a half hour, an hour after the uh, accepted time. Uh, they were in that framework. Uh, they tended to think more of cyclical time. Okay, this is planting time. Uh, this is harvest time and so forth, rather than linear time, and U.S. time is money. Furthermore, some cultures look at who we are as we are the only true people. I was shocked to find out, for example, that the Alka Indians, why did they kill uh, Jim Elliott and uh, Nate Saint and the rest of it? Well, among other things, they felt that if you were an Alka, you were a real individual. If you were not, you were kind of a little subhuman and you don't have to treat them exactly the way. 
Furthermore, uh, the whole idea of values and what is important. In uh, the West, many of the things that would, we would say, we would say, for instance, some of the worst sins that people do is sexual sins. How can't believe that that person did that? So-and-so who did that was so-and-so. Whereas in a culture where the relationships between groups is important, losing your temper and breaking that relationship with others is very important and very bad. Now, there are a number of different worldviews that come up uh, throughout the world. One of these is uh, the animist. Animist is a person who looks at the entire world as alive. Everything has uh, power. Sometimes that power is in, in the thing itself, mana. Uh, it can be in an object. It can be, for example, in a river or a tree or even the rapids of a river or located in a village. Everything is alive. And what we would consider inanimate may have a sort of life. Uh, and in fact, there may be demonic power in those various areas or locations. We used to see, for example, sacred trees, very common. Uh, I can think of one right at, right at the very moment in Lanti Way that they took us to a big tree about eight feet around. And uh, that was a sacred tree where they felt there was sacred power. Okay, so the whole world is alive. And uh, to survive there, certain people have certain abilities that they can handle uh, in different ways than the average individual. And these individuals may be uh, considered uh, witch doctors or shamans or in Suriname, Bonaman, Bonawoman. Uh, they have different names, but they are people who at least partially can control these various powers. This is in contrast to uh, the impersonal uh, religions that you see uh, in, for example, the West. I should say in the East, which would be like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, who at least theoretically believe in an impersonal monistic power. They call it monism. God is one. And in the back of that one God, they think is everything. They may call it pantheism. So God is one and everything is God. Brahman. Hmm? Now, this is in contrast to the religions of the West and also of the Middle East, where we have monotheistic, one God. That is different from monism. Monism is one thing, but that often slips into pantheism. Everything is God, uh, typically the East, but in the West, monotheism. Now, there are three primary monotheistic religions. Number one, Christianity, of course, was monotheistic, uh, although uh, we believe in the Trinity. Uh, that is, God has three persons, but one God. Uh, Judaism, of course, is monotheistic, and also Islam, monotheistic. They would be in contrast to the Hindu, and also contrast uh, to any animism.
as we uh, think also, there are some areas where the person is involved in secular humanism or communism, which is basically saying not monotheist, one God, not polytheist, many gods, typical of this would be, in, to a certain extent, Hinduism, although they, would, they have monism behind that, or the Greeks, hmm, uh, who would have their gods, the Romans who would have their multiple gods, or, but this is atheistic, uh, none, theos, God, no God, and that is communism, but it is also secular humanism. Now, how did this arise? Part of this occurred because of the development of modernism. If you look at the old religious style, Hello? Yes. Hi, Don. What's up? In the West, the two main views that we see are modernism and postmodernism. Modernism occurred arriving, arising rather, out of the Enlightenment. During the time of the Enlightenment, and the uh, what happened was that the medieval view, which was really much more biblical, was that the basic structure of the universe was separated between the Creator and His creation, with the Enlightenment and the development of modernism people began to see a separation between the visible and the invisible and felt that with empiricism, what you could see, feel, measure, and so forth, plus rationalism, what you could figure out in your head, that took precedence over God's revelation. As time went on, uh, then certain things were <clears throat> recognized in uh, medieval times. We began to question them. Uh, for example, things that you can't see. First, this occurred with such things as angels and demons. Later on, uh, it became uh, related to the Creator Himself, in many cases, with atheism and secular humanism and communism developing. This is a very sad thing, because what happens then is that man is uh, relegated to a group of uh, elements that just uh, assemble themselves together as evolution became the dominant philosophy. And secular humanism and evolution is currently the dominant philosophy even today. By doing this, uh, we greatly devaluate man. And you see such things as an increase in suicides and also uh, such things as abortions uh, and other devaluating types of behavior. Secular science became the dominant word of you, not only of science, but also of uh, law and education and media, and people don't even question. In fact, if you question evolution, people get very upset. Why do they get upset? Because it's not just an intellectual argument. You are attacking their worldview, which is what they use to hold everything together. So materialism and naturalism, focusing on today and here and now and what you can feel, see, measure, and so forth, becomes the dominant values. And in the United States today, what they have done is they have relegated religion to the private sector. Uh, eventually, 
we see this happening in some countries like communism, even to the point where, okay, you can have your religion in your house, but once you walk outside the door of the house, uh, that's not in, that's public. And I see secular humanists even trying to do the same thing in the United States. Well, you can have your religion as long as you're in church or at home, but don't you bring it outside the doors of the church. Now, what happened with modernism is that we found that we don't have all the answers, that human ingenuity and uh, empiricism does not give us all the answers, and so we've become very skeptical that there are no absolutes, and now we have developed postmodernism. Of course, nobody can really live by postmodernism, but that's what we have. And so uh, uh, my statement has often been uh, to the and would be to the postmodernist, are you absolutely sure that there are no absolutes? Which is, of course, a ridiculous statement and self-defeating. But so is modern postmodernism. Nobody can really live that way. Thrown in because of modernism saying, well, anything goes, is political correctness. And so we emphasize pluralism. What's true for me is good for me. Maybe it's not true for you, but that's all right. You can have your truth and I'll have my truth. Um, and that is the postmodern political correct view. Now, some things that can happen when the missionary who grows up in this Western philosophy goes to another field, let's say he's going to go as a church planter, he may take his uh, religious training, his theology with him, but if he doesn't bring a worldview that is biblical with him, he may drag out this this Western modernistic or postmodernistic type of philosophy with him, uh, with his religion, and at times what happens is that the people will accept the underlying worldview even without him realizing it, and reject the religion itself, and he can even be a secularizing force to the very people he's trying to reach with the gospel. Our modernism tends to be amoral, because if you put God to the side, then what, and postmodernism even more so, what is really moral? Utilitarian, what works, works. That's pragmatism. Uh, and focuses on uh, impersonal laws often, whereas the Bible itself uh, focuses on uh, relationships. Let me give you an example of that. The, in the Western worldview, we focus often on guilt and um, innocence. And we look at this as there's an quote-unquote impersonal law that uh, we have to obey, whereas the Hebrew idea of shalom is really restoration of proper relationships. And in the Bible, sin is not breaking a law. Sin is rebelling against a personal creator. And there is a big difference between the two. So, with... The modern society, modernism, tends to promote sexual immorality. Why not? Enjoy it. Strangely, uh, immediate gratification and, co and compulsive spending, and we see this.
today. There's a big difference between uh, the traditional society, where good people help each other and uh, build up each other, and in the modern society, where good people just take care of themselves, make sure they're okay. Now, what about um, these other various views? And are they really totally separated? Well, no, they're not. Uh, for instance, I start off by using um, animism. And the reason I do that is because 40% or so of the world is animistic in philosophy. There is animism, which of course occurs in small group societies like we found in Suriname. That's classic animism, uh, African uh, tribal class. But you find it also in Christianity. For example, Santerra is an example of this. Uh, or some of the Caribbean religions are examples uh, of this, where they combine, for example, Roman Catholicism and uh, animism. We saw this also in uh, Suriname, where as long as you do certain ritual things, as far as the Catholics are concerned, you could have all your animism as well. But that's also true in Islam. A lot of people in Islam, especially in the poorer countries, are not just pure uh, Islamic theoretically, but involved in animism. It's also true in Hinduism and also true in Buddhism. And so in each of these countries, uh, there is an underlying feeling that nature is alive with spirits and uh, you know, they can be anywhere. They can be in the village, they can be in the trees, they can be in the rapids, they can be in the animals, they can be in the plants, they can be in the people, all sorts of things. Of course, animists themselves uh, are usually uh, not the highly educated people. They're the shamans and the witch doctors. They don't have a holy scriptures. Normally they have an oral society with oral traditions instead, uh, and uh, they are widespread. Uh, we have generally, uh, when focusing on animism, been rather successful in replacing animism with Christianity. take a few minutes and talk about uh, Islam. Islam started with Muhammad, who lived from 570 to 32 AD, uh, is grown to the point that it is the second largest religion in the world, uh, 1.7 billion people at the present time. Christianity, the largest, about 2.1 billion people at the present time. Uh, followed by Hinduism, it's a little over a billion people, and then followed by uh, by Buddhism. Uh, the word uh, Islam and uh, the Muslim has to do with uh, people who submit. So the Muslim is one who submits. Islam is the religion of submission, submission to Allah. And even Muhammad's father, Abdullah, was uh, was slave of Allah. Okay. Now, Muhammad uh, was raised in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. His family was of the Quraysh, and the Quraysh was the largest and dominant tribe in the now-called holy city of Mecca. Uh, he married a uh, woman at age 25. She was 40, uh, and then Fifteen years later, began to see visions and encounters of the supernatural uh, apparition or person who identified himself 
as Gabriel or Gibriel, the archangel, uh, revealing himself in Arabic poetry, uh, which became the Quran. The uh, Muhammad uh, was happily married to Khadija, and they had six children. Uh, at age 65, she died, and he uh, began to take other women, first Sauda. A uh, short time after that, he took his favorite wife, who happened to be a young daughter of his, one of his best friends, uh, Abu Bakr. By the way, Abu Bakr is a, fam is a famous name for uh, many Muslims. Uh, Aisha, who was somewhere either uh, six or seven years of age when they were formally married, but consummated, uh, that is, having sexual relations, when she was nine years of age. Muhammad was in Mecca for 13 years. Uh, during that time, he accumulated about 150 uh, individuals. There's a lot of strife between him and the rest of the Quraysh tribe because he attacked the idolatry, which was rife in Quraysh, and also attacked their economics. Finally, uh, he uh, had the opportunity to leave uh, fact, he was kind of forced out in many ways uh, to Medina, and that is called the Hijira. Uh, he later came back and made some of the traditional uh, things, uh, the Hajj and so forth, around the, uh, the Kaaba, uh, the sacred house that is there. But his flight from uh, uh, Mecca to Medina is called the Hijira. And that is the beginning of the Muslim calendar. During his time uh, of nine years in Medina, among other things, there were five tribes originally, three Jew tribes and two Arab tribes. Uh, Muhammad uh, basically kicked out two of the, Arab, of the Jewish tribes, rather, over a period of time, and then actually decimated the third tribe, beheading about 600 to 800 of their men on a single day. Uh, we know that uh, the uh, they have a number of sacred things they do, and they have certain uh, basic pillars, including uh, the uh, prayers, uh, the zakat, uh, the shahada, which is the creed, saying uh, there's uh, no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, the, the zakat, or the uh, poor tax, uh, Ramadan, which is quite well known, which is a month of fasting, and then his special trip to the Hajj, which is a trip to go back to Medina, uh, I'm sorry, to Mecca, and walk around the Hajj, and do uh, uh, walk around the Kaaba, and do several other things at the time. The uh, Islamic culture has grown primarily by the sword, and we are still experiencing that. In fact, we're experiencing a resurgence, which is rather striking, of Islam. When uh, I was young, the major problem that they felt in the world from the West was communism, which has become much less a problem. But in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a huge surge back with Islam. So the world's largest religion then is Christianity. The second religion is uh, 
Islam, and then the third largest religion is Hinduism. Hinduism is about a billion people, maybe a little bit less, but the vast majority of them, well over 90%, are concentrated in one place. That is not true of Islam. Islam is scattered over a large area. Uh, 52 at least nations are Islamic, but the primary nation for Hinduism is India, with close to 800 million uh, Hindus in that one country. The Hindu uh, believes in monism, uh, the belief of one uh, god, or one, I should say, one sort of power. It's, it's, you could call it a god if you wish, but it's really an impersonal god, almost an impersonal power, uh, Brahman, uh, and then they have what they call uh, 33 million of their own gods. But uh, they uh, believe that these are emanations or reflections of the Brahman. One of the key things with Hinduism is that they believe in uh, that uh, in Maya, which is that the entire universe, basically, the material universe is basically uh, not real. It is a uh, sort of an illusion, and that the that is not reality, and Brahma is the true uh, reality, and uh, that they focus more on the imperson, I'm sorry, the immaterial than on the material. Uh, so they are more spiritually oriented, if you wish. They do all sorts of things to try to come back to union with the Brahman. Included in this are uh, a variety of different ways, the way of devotion, uh, the way of knowledge, and also, interestingly, the way that is evolved in yoga. So yoga is more than just exercise. Yoga is a way to come to one with God and reach what Buddhists would call nirvana. That's what we're most common uh, here to turn, but uh, other words, satori, uh, and uh, samadhi, and they would talk about uh, being like a drop of water going in the ocean. Major features of Hinduism include karma, which means that every action has its sort of reaction, and interestingly, even though they look at the power of uh, the universe as impersonal, they believe that there is a sort of moral value to karma. And if you do good, your karma is good, you will rise higher in the um, scale of uh, beings and eventually perhaps become to the point where you can escape the cycle of birth and rebirth because they believe in reincarnation and be unified with Brahma and you kind of just disappear. They do not believe in the value of the person per se, and they do not believe in the uh, way that we would look at sin again, which is, would involve basically against a personal type God and the need of a savior. So key, uh, and key to Hinduism is the belief of Maya, that is that things are an illusion, uh, that there is a cycle of birth and rebirth by reincarnation, and uh, that karma determines what you have. In fact, uh, 
one time when I was having uh, my computer repaired uh, via the internet. At the end, the guy says, wishes me good karma. Very, very Hindu. Okay. Despite that, people are still people. And you can say these things theoretically, but it may not have uh, come into an impact the life on an everyday basis. People will say, well, Hinduism is a peaceful religion. Theoretically, that is true. Of course, in some theory, uh, they say that also about Islam, but in Hinduism uh, and also in Buddhism, they would say that. But even in Hinduism and in Buddhism, uh, persecution occurs. And this persecution has become rather severe, especially directed against Christianity with such groups as the RSS and uh, various political parties that have risen, which are basically saying uh, India is Hindu uh, and other people might as well just get out, particularly Christians. And so such places as Orissa have had major conflicts with uh, between Christians and uh, the Hindus. Now, Christianity is rather small. Uh, one to two percent of the entire population is somewhere in that range. You look at all of India, although there are some uh, sections uh, of India where there's more Christians uh, concentrated. So theoretically, maybe persecution shouldn't be there. They talk about having many ways to uh, to heaven, so to speak. And uh, in fact, many would take uh, Jesus as an avatar, one of their safe, quote-unquote saviors, although really they don't look at saving uh, you from sin in the same way. Uh, you'll probably be opening your eyes more to the reality of, the, uh, of your oneness with, with the Brahman, but um, persecution occurs as well. This is also true of Buddhism and, of course, is very common uh, in uh, Islam. Well, we've uh, basically come to the end of this particular lesson, or I should say review, and uh, I wish you the very best on your uh, midterm exam. May the Lord abundantly bless you as you study, and may he help us to understand others and reach them for the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you.